This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. An Auditor General's report talking about uh, what the cost of the Fair Hydro plan actually is. Uh, what's uh, you know concerning in all of this is that there seems to be creative accounting going on uh, with the wind government. And if you cannot believe the Auditor General, then who do you believe? I, I mean, really, what is the government asking us to do here? Uh, let's bring in Alan Carter, Queen's, uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News, and is with us now. Alan, thanks for taking the time to join us. Appreciate this. Oh, thanks for having me on, Scott. So uh, your uh, column today, of course, which you can find uh, on the Global News site, uh, Ontario's War on Truth. Who do we believe here, Alan, the Auditor General or the Ontario government here? This is incredibly difficult to to parse for a layman, let alone an accountant, because both sides, when her report went live last week, lined up experts on either side to say, this is allowed or this is not allowed. And what we're talking about here is the Fair Hydro Plan and the mechanics of it, not as the auditor tried to stress, the actual policymaking, because the auditor's not, job is not to question policymaking. The auditor's job is to find out, are we getting value for money? Are we actually spending the money wisely? Is the bottom line and the balance sheet actually true? And what she's saying is, is the way that they're going to fund this, and, and the reason you have, on average, a 25% cut in most of our hydro bills, and you may, I don't know if you've seen it, Scott, I know I've seen it on mine, mm-hmm. is the way that that's happening is, is it's not the cost of electricity that's gone down. We're just paying less. And then we're going to accumulate all of this debt within Ontario power generation. And then beginning in 2027, 2028, we've got to pay it all back. And starting at that point, people are going to have to pay more for power than it's actually worth, than it's actually costing, because they got to pay back all the, you know, the price breaks we have now. Now, the central issue here, though, Scotty, is, is should that debt be carried in Ontario power generation, mm-hmm. or should it be carried on the government's bottom line? The government says this is the way this thing done, is done. Uh, the auditor says, no, you're doing this because this is a way to make you look like you have a balanced budget when you don't, and oh, by the way, it's going to cost us you know, $4 billion over 30 years extra because you've done it this way. The truth, I'm afraid, is somewhere in the middle. It's You can't say either one of them is right. Uh, so at the end of the day, are they trying to make a loss look like an asset? I mean, how do you do that? Well, again, government debt is worth something, is what the government will tell you. Mm-hmm. People buy government debt because it's got value to it. So that, it, you know, the auditor says in one of our examples, it's like saying, okay, I have a credit card and that credit card uh, balance that I have is an asset of mine. Well, that's not true in personal finance, but the government's perspective would be, well, the credit card company certainly thinks that's an asset. So, again, we get back to this very tiny minutia on accounting, but the trouble here is not about accounting. Even though both sides, you know, both sides, one side says this is an accounting dispute, that's the government, and, and the auditor says this is much bigger. It's, much, it, it's about truth and, and how you understand a bottom line. And this auditor is increasingly an activist auditor because she's upset a bunch, of, a bunch of different things. And when you start having... You know, the guy that, or, or the woman that's counting the beans upset with the government, I'm not sure that we get the truth from there either. So are you saying this is personal? It's gone beyond what everyone's role is here? 
I, I would hesitate to say that because, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm not an accountant, and I don't play one on TV, and I saw a whole lot of accountants in a room last <laughs> week, and they didn't seem to agree on anything either. So, I mean, and like I keep saying to people, like, there's, is there anything sexier than an accountant fight? Yeah, really, yeah. I mean, that's I'll, a top although, although this one is, I must admit. Uh, or, or let's ask that, Alan. Is this sexy and exciting, or the only ones interested in it are people like you and me? I'm afraid that that's the truth. The difficulty is a headline like what came out this week about, well, you know, they're they're possibly fudging the numbers. That can stick, but I don't think it's it's not sticking with the people who aren't really paying attention to every nook and cranny of Ontario politics. So what's the role of the Auditor General then? Uh, you know, obviously the government's interpretation or the, the, the government says that their interpretation is flawed. So what's the, what's the Auditor General to do here? What, what's her role? Well, you know, you, you wonder how does this possibly resolve itself? They continue. Like the thing that I wrote in my column that just blew me away is that the government the, through the Ministry of Energy actually called me the day before the auditor's report came out to say – listen, you know, basic assumptions on accounting principles are flawed. And I said, well, wait a second. This is a, a report from the from an independent officer of the legislature that gets tabled at 10.30 tomorrow morning in the House. Now, the Ministry of Energy has the report. They get an advanced copy because they get to respond to it. It's like, well, you're spinning me on something that's not even available yet. And so that gives you a sense of mm. how heightened the tensions are between these two offices. And I, it's going to ratchet up as, before, as we get into the election, especially when her uh, general report comes out. And that usually comes out early December and is usually a Christmas gift for the opposition. And it is going to be a sledgehammer this year, I predict. Well, and again, what's different here between this Auditor General and others? I mean, the Auditor General's role is to vet these things. Now the government's telling us to vet the Auditor General. Well, you you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. That's so frightening for the sense of truth. And that's what I talk about when I talk about the war on truth. And I don't want to say it's a war just on one side because there are both sides lobbing hand grenades at each other here. Again, this sounds like something out of the U.S. Alan, it really does. It's like, no, don't believe that guy. Believe this guy. Like, come on. I mean, th- this is the Auditor General here. Well, I, you, you, you're absolutely right, and we should have, be able to have confidence in our independent officers of the legislature. But increasingly, the liberals are at war with them. They're at war with the Financial Accountability Office. They used to be at war with the Ontario Ombudsman, but then finally Andre Marin left. Thank goodness, said the liberals, and wiped their brow. And the new Ombudsman hasn't proven to be nearly as activist. But it's this ongoing fight with its own accountants and its own watchdogs that really makes you wonder, well, where is the truth? The government says it's black, and these independents say, well, it's white. You wonder, when are we as voters really going to know what's going on? And this Auditor General has history in the electricity file, does she, does she not? I mean, well, there is experience here. Well, she's looked into it before, Scott, but previously when she issued a big report on the account, on the uh, energy sector, then Minister Bob Shirelli said that her office didn't understand it, that yeah. perhaps it was too complicated. Yeah. So where does this go from here? How do you mend these fences? Or is this just a war until the next election and then we go from there? Well, either the next election or the next auditor, because her term will come up and she'll be replaced by somebody else. And the government of the day will hope that they won't be nearly as activist. And I, you know, I question and I think something we have to ask ourselves is, do we want a bean counter with a you know, chip on our shoulder? 
Is, or, that, you know, is that what you think we have here, Alan? I don't know. Maybe let me let me take that back. Because Not you're... chip on her shoulder, but somebody who is outraged at what she considers to be the curbing of her own power. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting you choose the word activist. I've said that about Kathleen Wynne. Well, that is true, you know, and Kathleen Wynne will tell you that she is proudly activist, that she came to power promising to be an activist government and has done so. Mm -hmm. And now you have on the other side of the ledger someone who is an activist as well saying, listen, you've changed the rules with advertising. That's not fair. You're doing something with the money that I don't agree with. That's not fair and not truthful and not right. So... uh what does the public think of the Auditor General? Does the public view the Auditor General as someone who is neutral, or does the public view the Auditor General who's, ah, it's just like another politician. You don't know who to believe here. Well, I think I, I, the what I fear for this province is that it is tipping towards the former, that or the latter. I can't remember the question anymore. Um, but no, seriously, that it is tipping towards believing that it is a partisan office. And yeah, I think yeah. there is blame on both sides of the border to go on this one, to say that that is happening because of both sides and the war that they wage in terms of, um, you know, spin and public relations. And right now, I think the the public is with the auditor and there's a general distrust of the government. But as the government continues to say she doesn't understand or she has an agenda or she can't count. Hmm. Uh, does the auditor general have a loss of credibility here more so than than the premier or vice versa? Well, I think so. I, th- I think Bonnie Lissick's um, credibility is on the line here. Remember, this is a, a basic structure on whether or not to count things like uh, pension assets, right? And, you know, th- there are big groups on uh, on the other side who say that Bonnie Lissick is wrong. And so what do you make of that? Is Has the auditor gone rogue? Hmm. I think there's an element of that out there. Uh, at the end of the day, will this all resonate come election time? Is this just become such a hot potato, anything to do with the electricity file, and people just shake their head? Well, here's what I find interesting, Scott, is that you look at the polling information and, you know, po- uh, policy by the Liberal government rates fairly well, even though Kathleen Wynne herself trails terribly in the polls, personally although she's come up a little bit. But if you look at the breakdown of the policies, the $15 an hour minimum wage, that that's very popular. And a couple of other policies are quite popular. The free drugs are quite popular. But the hydro one, the one that they're going to hang their hat on, is not that popular because I believe that there is an understanding out there that this is kicking the can down the road. There is no other way to look at it. I mean, that is just truly what it is. And this gets away from the auditor and the counting and the accountability or the accounting issues because this is how the plan works. As I said, we don't pay now and somebody pays later. That's the plan. Mm. Ontario's War on Truth by Alan Carter, anchor, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Of course, you can uh, see this on our website and make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Love being on the show. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly heard lots about the bidding war for Amazon and its new uh, headquarters. 
Uh, the original, of course, in Seattle. Hamilton in on that fight and, uh, of course, uh, using this as a, uh, a stepping stone and a building block and into doing these sorts of things. Uh, some suitors have been burned before. Is this just part of the application process? Uh, how do you uh, really uh, not only prepare for the rejection, but what about success? Do you have to sell the farm to make it happen? To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, my pleasure. So, is this the the big prize that every city is trying to hook? Is it all as good as what it seems to be? Um, you know, it's one of those things that's like the lottery. Most people never win the lottery. Uh, the vast, vast majority of people do not, never will win the lottery. But the one person who does win the lottery... Uh, discovers that it's, it literally changes their life. And it's that, uh, it's that dramatic. So, yes and no. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. It's spectacular, the impact of, uh, uh, the, that will befall the city that wins the, the, um, the second headquarters. But there's dozens and dozens and dozens of cities that, of course, are not going to win. So, <laughs> to them, it's, nothing will change, and it'll just be business as usual. How does this change the city that gets it, good or bad? Um, it, it, let's use the existing, as opposed to speculation, let's use hard empirical data. Amazon is the largest employer in Seattle. Seattle's a decent-sized city. I've been to Seattle. And, um, I mean, it's not Toronto, it's not New York City, it's not Chicago, but it's still it's a good tier-two city, if we can call it that. And... Um, it, Seattle is dominated, I mean, just absolutely dominated by, uh, by the, by the uh, presence of, uh, of Amazon, uh, simply because it's so, such a large employer, 50,000 employees. Just imagine, I mean, in one city. I mean, this is just mind-boggling. I, I live in a good-sized city. Ottawa is the fourth or fifth largest city in, in Canada. Uh, my my university is considered a major employer in the area, and I think we employ about two thousand people. So it gives you an idea of the scale. It's just enormous. It affects, of course, everything. It affects. It'll affect immediately the need for housing. Uh, if fifty thousand people come in uh, and and come in in a fairly short period of time, it's going to create a housing boom. It's going to put proper pressure on real estate prices. It's going to create uh, demand for new schools, of course, because the whole demography of that region or city is going to change. There's going to be the need for new fire stations and new uh, fire uh, police stations. There's going to be need for new uh, transit. So it's it's literally going to transform the footprint of that city. So in one sense, yes, it's good news. It's going to bring lots of change and lots of growth. In another sense, it is going to bring problems. I mean, because you have this any time, and we saw this in a very different context in the oil sands, where you have very, very rapid growth. Um, you know, it, it creates problems because you have to manage that growth. And uh, so I can understand why mayors are, are fighting and would, you know, die to, to get it, be, to, to win it. Uh, to to have uh, Amazon select them because I mean you'll be if you so wish you'll be the mayor for life you'll you, be so recognized and so uh, you'll be such a hero. Do you have to sell the farm to obtain this? Uh, do you have to um, literally give them so much just to even entertain the fact that right. uh, that the costs are too high and, and perhaps not sustainable? 
You asked an excellent question, um, and the reason I'm hesitating is because we only know the record of Amazon in one city, and that's in Seattle. And it was over a period of time when they were growing from literally nothing, I mean zero, they were founded and established in Seattle, over the years to where they are now. But the new headquarters, HQ2 as they're calling it, will be very different from HQ1 because it won't be a company that is a startup uh, growing from scratch. Or to put it in a slightly different way, Amazon doesn't need money. That doesn't mean they won't ask for assistance and support. But this is no longer a startup hanging on by its fingernails. Mm -hmm. This is a company that is one of the largest corporations in the world today. And, And so their needs are going to be different than the uh, classical needs of a, a factory that goes into an area and they want, you know, free taxes for 10 years or very low taxes, subsidized taxes, right. and, and they want all that sort of thing. In, in Amazon's instance, it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to, I think it's going to be different. I think that people are over, the, the pundits are, are overstating uh, what they're going to be asking for in terms of the freebies. I'm not suggesting Amazon's not going to ask for freebies, but they're not going to be just crude, old-fashioned, give us some free buildings or give us some free land or give us some free municipal taxation. I'm, I'm guessing that they're going to be demanding that the municipality commit to all kinds of infrastructure-type spending to make the region more palatable, compatible. Mm. Uh, to the um, future employees of Amazon. So, yes, it will be spending. Yes, it will put a burden on the, on, the, on the city that wins HQ2. But it's going to be different from, you know, the classic bidding for a factory where it's very just straight old-fashioned self-interest, give me a building, give me some land that I don't have to pay for. I, I think in, in Amazon's instance, it's going to be much more... Um, for want of a better word, cultural, in terms of their demands in the uh, in the uh, local uh, community, uh, because they want the sort of infrastructure. I'm using it very loosely here now to include things like national art centers and theaters and that sort of thing that will be conducive to their employees, whatever it is that is conducive to their employees. Are they building Amazonville? Is this something that will be within a city, or is this a city within a city? We don't know yet. Uh, remember, I, 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 I know I keep saying this, and I sound like a stock record, but uh, I don't know of any company that has two head offices. Let's start there. Mm. I'm talking big companies. But as, a but little as, company wouldn't have two head offices. But as you said, Ian, when this started in in Seattle, this was a startup. So yes. now I'm guessing they're building their dream HQ. So uh, what will this have that the other one doesn't? Excellent question. Um, the, uh, I mean, yes, you're right. They're going to want to build it better than they did the first time around, uh, which only begs the question, well, what did they do so badly the first time around, given that they grew in that 20-odd-year period from absolutely zero to one of the largest corporations on the planet Earth? Not so bad, not so shabby. <laughs> and they did it in a city that most people would agree has become even more attractive over the past 20-odd years. So I'm not so sure that that what they did uh, was uh, you know was po- populated with mistakes. Uh, I I'm guessing, and again I'm, we're not privy to what went through 
Jeff Bezos' head. I certainly use this case study, well, the Amazon case study every year in my classes because it's a fascinating, fascinating case study in strategy and startups and so forth. But we're not privy to what's going on in his head, and he may be worried that that it's just become so so. Um, uh, the, Amazon's become so large relative to the city that he doesn't want it to become Amazonville, as you just pointed out. Mm. And so he wants it to be, yes, supportive of Amazon, but not to the point that it becomes Amazonville. And so he's diversifying, possibly, for that reason. Um, and so I think it's going to be in one respect, or several respects, it's going to be very different. So those who think it's just going to be sort of a clone of uh of uh, of uh, Seattle, I think, might be surprised. You know, he may surprise us and go into uh, the American Deep South, mm. you know, uh, which is a very different place, I assure you, from Seattle. It's the antithesis of the American Deep South. They're very liberal, very, very progressive uh, uh, in Seattle, very, very opposite of, uh, say, uh, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, or, or uh, South Carolina. Um, he might go into that, or he might go into a, a really working class or, or historically a blue collar community like Hamilton. Can... Uh, and uh, and and uh, so we don't yet know. I do think this, though. I I think he's. I, I I've come to the conclusion, and so I'm I'm not making a prediction in the sense of the name of a city, but I I think we can rule out that he's not going to go to really really big cities. So that'll rule out the New York cities and the Chicago's and the giant cities, the mega cities. Because he wants to be it to be big enough to be able to support Amazon, but not so big that he's just another yet another employer, and that's what he would be if he was in New York City, because New York City is so enormous. So I think that rules out the really the big cities, the giant cities, and he's not going to go to a city that is too small, and that suggests that I think that Seattle is probably the minimum size. So I think if the if the cities applying that are in the 200 range of population or three or 400, I I just don't think he's going to go there because it won't have the scale and the capacity to support the needs of an Amazon. So that suggests he's going to be looking for one of those in between cities, um, in the um, something like the size of Ottawa. And I'm by the way, I'm not suggesting it'll go to Ottawa. I do not believe it's going to go to Ottawa. I just threw that out there because Ottawa's around a million, and it just seems to me that that is uh, an optimal size. Size, uh, and there's lots of cities around of about a million that he uh, could go to. And then the, the stated things that he said. We want transportation links. He actually specified where, to which cities. There must be direct, thank you very much, transportation links. None of this. We have to do two hops to get there. He wants direct flights to Seattle from the, from the new HQ2. So, you know, there's, there's population stuff. There's uh, the mentality of the city. Does it support uh, economic development? Uh, there's the infrastructure links. Um, and, uh, and then there's things he even specified, higher education, you know, linkages with higher education. So he's got a big, long shopping list. And I, have a, I bet you, in Jeff Bezos' mind, he already knows. That who who are on the short list? I'm Wait sure a second, uh, Ian. I've got that written down on my list of questions uh, here. Uh, does he already know where he wants this to go? He's just creating hype and perhaps trying to get more. I think he is. I I uh, I've studied this guy for since he started Amazon. He's an extraordinarily smart guy, and I'm not saying that just because oh well he's rich and he's got a great big company. He I've I've been studying and using him in my class since he started it, when there were a lot of people saying this was just not going to work. 
and and I, you know, with the background, he's a very smart guy. He's got an MBA. He had studied this and developed a business plan years before he actually did it. This wasn't something he did on a whim where he woke up one morning in the shower and said, I had a dream last night. He planned this out to the 18 millionth degree. He is a real strategic thinker. And the proof is in the last 20 years, he very carefully built it up. This is the kind of a guy who does not do things on a whim or on a feeling. This is someone who plots and plans and strategizes every variable. So I've got to believe, I do believe, that he, if he doesn't actually know, and he probably does know the name of the the city he's probably going to land on, but I am certain he knows the short list of, let's say, maximum five cities. And he knows all the rest don't have a, to be blunt, a snowball's chance in hell because they don't have the various mixture of, of things he wants. So I am absolutely certain he's already very clear in his head, and he's doing it partly because it's creating a lot of buzz. And, and, and Amazon and Bezos, from the very beginning, going back into the mid-90s, they've been masters at creating lots and lots of buzz mm. and lots of excitement around his company and brand. And that motivates the people that work there. There's a real strong culture at Amazon, just as there is at some of these other very, very, very successful companies like Google or Microsoft. So you already think there is a short list and the all-call is, again, just hype-related. I, or, do. I or, do. Or maybe searching for something they didn't look at. I mean, well, except that I think he is such a smart, strategic analyst. Yeah. Yeah. He was. He's already, he knows every city yeah. in the U.S. and Canada. He's flown into them many times. This guy's on a plane all the time. It's not as if he sits out there in Seattle and he's never heard of Ottawa or Hamilton or some of these cities. He's flying all over the country all the time. He's a voracious reader. He talks to other CEOs all the time. He goes to business conferences all the time. I'm sure, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet a small amount of money, because <laughs> I'm not a gambler, that he has been to every city before mm. the competition was announced, that he has been already in his past life, I mean, in his CEO life, he's been to every city that is applying to become HQ2. He knows all these cities. He knows them intimately, inside out and backward. And so he'll know he was forming his opinion over the years about, you know, is this a future place where we could expand to? And so that's why I say it's nothing, it's no conspiracy here I'm saying. It's just I think that this guy is such a strategic thinker and he's got such deep experience traveling all over the U.S. and Canada for years upon years upon years. And I'm sure he has a very, very good idea in his head you know, just like a coach in the NFL or the mm-hmm. NHL, you know, they they know who the good coaches are out there. They know the good teams. They know who the stars are. They know who the dogs are. It just comes from all that tacit knowledge called experience. Another word for tacit knowledge is simply good old-fashioned experience of being in business a long time and knowing all the players and, and, and all the teams. And I think he has a, a really good idea of what he wants a HQ2 to be and which city is going to get it. And I don't think it's going to be something sort of just this down the road. That's why I rule out uh, most of California. I'm sure he'll go south or go east. I mean by that somewhere in the northeast or the southeast, one of the, the Sun Belt states and like the Carolinas, like uh, Durham, Raleigh, Durham. Yeah. Uh, or, or one of those short ones is Austin, Texas. I happen to have been to Austin, Texas. I wouldn't recommend to anybody to go to Texas, and I'm not 
uh, prejudiced against it. It's just that I just, it's the most uninteresting state in the whole U.S., <laughs> to my point of view. But, but, Austin, just so now I will contradict myself, yeah. Austin is a very exciting city. It's yeah. got the University of Texas there. Mm-hmm. There's a real culture there of young liberal millennials, yeah. lots of good big music scene. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of, it's an Amazon city, if you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. Do you think this headquarters could end up looking like a campus-like facility with residents in it? I do. I, I think they're, he's been struck over the years. I mean, yes, he's a startup, but he's not a, quote, Silicon Valley company in the same sense that a Google is or a Microsoft is or the techies are, the, the Apples are, in Silicon Valley. And I visited some of those companies when I was on sabbatical uh, 10 years ago in California. And there really is, they, they turn them into these, they call them campuses, and there's, yeah. they, they look and they feel like a university. There's a yeah. lot of overlap. And it's very deliberate. And I think that he's going to, he likes that feel. It appeals to young people. Yeah. And it's a very youthful company. And, of course, young people have all kinds of energy. And, and, and creating that sort of campus environment, it's, it's far less bureaucratic, so people don't feel you know, the, the, the suffocation of bureaucracy and, and stupid rules and that sort of thing that all of us hate so much. And, and so I think that he's going to create even more so so he's going to fine-tune the model that's in, in, uh, in uh, Seattle. And, and I, let me go further one step further. I really do believe, and I don't think that he's being egotistical. If he said it out loud, it would be egotistical. But I really do think he sees himself uh, as a future Henry Ford I mm. or a, um, the person that founded uh, General Electric, the famous elect- uh, electrical engineer. Um, these were visionaries who literally transformed the entire face of the United States, transformed the history of the U.S. at their time. And I think he sees himself, he's not doing this now. He doesn't need any money. He's a, the second, I believe, the second richest person on the planet Earth. So when you're worth 50 or 60 or 70 billion dollars, you're not doing it because you're short a couple of bucks to go down to the pub tomorrow night, hmm. you know, or you're a little short on your next car payment. He did, he's not doing it. This is where these criticisms of the really rich, you know, by, uh, pardon me for saying so, but by left-wing groups and NGOs that criticize them for their greed, they completely fail to understand because maybe they just don't understand these people. They're not doing it out of greed. They're not doing it to make more money because they're broke or they're poor or they think they are. They're doing it because... They're in the same sense that Henry Ford did it, in the same sense that, you know, any of those early, uh, the, you know, the Rockefellers did it with uh, creating uh, Exxon, uh, Standard Oil, that became Exxon. They are true visionaries, and they're trying to create something that doesn't exist. And they see themselves every bit as creative, as being a, every bit as creative as an artist who's uh- a painter or a musician. And they really do see themselves in that light. They don't see them as. And I've read a, a review. I mean, a, a biographies of some of these very famous, um, very, very, very wealthy business people. And over and over, it came through. I, they would say things like, "I don't give a damn about the money." Hmm. You know, that's just a scorecard to show I'm winning and that I'm really good. You know, I'm not doing it just because I want to get the money and and go and. You know, a lot of these people, like uh, John uh, D. Rockefeller the first were famous for being unbelievably cheap 
I mean, they wouldn't spend any money on themselves yeah. or their family. You know, so they do it because they're creators and they're visionaries, and that's what gives them their kick. And I think Jeff Bezos is very much in that category. He sees himself as someone who is transforming the United States and transforming the world. And just as Henry Ford the first did with the uh, with the uh, the Model T Ford and the creation of the mass consumption mass market uh, world that uh, the Americans essentially invented at the very turn of 1900. And so he's very much in that league. He's, he's doing this because he wants to he be written up one day as the guy that created a new model of how to run and manage corporations. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, the bidding war for Amazon, of course, uh, over now, and now we wait for the results and, of course, how that will affect the city that is chosen. Ian, thanks for the time and insight, as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, back to uh, the diabetes scenario. Let's bring in Kimberly Hansen, Director of Federal, Federal Affairs, uh, Diabetes Canada, and is on the line with us now. Kimberly, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure. So tell us how uh, these new taxes or the loss of the tax credit are affecting diabetics. This is a big impact on people with type 1 diabetes. Uh, the Type 1 diabetes can cost out of pocket up to $15,000 a year to manage. That's a significant amount for most uh, people in Canada to, to have to shell out. And it's enough that it can pre- prevent people from being able to follow their ideal treatment protocol, which puts at risk their short-term and their long-term health. This tax credit is uh, on average about $1,500 to uh, each applicant. And that can certainly not fully address that out-of-pocket expense, but it goes a, a way to help defray that. And so uh, patients that are being rejected now are really concerned and stressed by this fact. Uh, talk about what the challenges are with type 1 uh, diabetes. Uh, maybe explain the difference between type 1 and uh, type 2. What can you tell us about what, it, what the costs are and, and, um, and, and what they have to do to maintain their lifestyle? Yeah, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder whereby the patient's autoimmune system, for reasons we don't understand, uh, just all of a sudden starts recognizing the cells in their pancreas that produce insulin as foreign substances and kills them off. And so people with type 1 diabetes make no insulin of their own. Every human requires insulin in order to live. So people with type 1 diabetes for the rest of their lives, have to take insulin either by injection or by infusion with an insulin pump. Otherwise, we die. Uh, And it's really a challenging disease. It requires 24-7, 365 day a year management. People have to calculate how much carbohydrate they're consuming, how much exercise they're doing, how much stress they're under, what the weather's like, all to calculate how much insulin they need to take many, many times a day, and, uh, and, and still, uh, despite doing their best, it can often not com- cooperate. So it's a challenging disease. It, it's, it's very time-consuming for many people to manage it, and it's a disease that's also uh, often debilitating over time. There is no cure, and uh, people with type 1 diabetes are much more susceptible to many complications, including blindness, kidney failure, so on and so forth. So 
There's nothing that uh, patients can do to um, to prevent getting type 1 diabetes. It's, it's sort of more random. And, uh, and though we don't completely understand why it affects some people, it certainly does affect them. So talk a little bit about stress being a factor and, and what, what it does uh, to diabetics. And obviously, this is a stressful situation for them if they're not getting this money. Well, it is. And so if you think about a time when you've been scared or angry and you have that surge of adrenaline and then you feel kind of jacked and hyper and, and that kind of thing, uh, that's because your liver has dumped a whole bunch of sugar into your bloodstream to help um, enable you to flee or fight, right? It's an old uh, mm-hmm. human instinct. And so stress in many of us causes that kind of a mechanism to a greater or lesser degree, which usually means that it elevates people's blood sugars. So if I am a type 1 diabetic and I am stressed, then usually my blood sugar is going to be higher and maybe a bit more resistant to the insulin that I'm taking by injection, and I'm going to start to not feel well, and that can often be a little bit of a snowball effect. So it's definitely, um, there's a strong uh, relationship between stress and blood sugar control, and I think at a bare minimum, it's safe to say that type 1 diabetes is a challenging enough um, issue to have to live with or condition to have to live with, for the rest of one's life, and it would certainly be nice if people didn't also have to deal with the stress of uh, dealing with challenges and reapplications and appeals to the CRA. Uh, is type one uh, type one dia- uh, diabetes? Are you born with that? Does it happen later in life? No, it's, it happens a bit later in life, um, but it can happen from infancy, really, sort of through any. Uh, stage of life. It used to be known as juvenile diabetes because it was more typically seen in children, but uh, that's not necessarily the case, uh, especially now, so it can show up at really any time. So difference between type 1 and type 2? Type 2 diabetes uh, is a condition whereby people still make insulin, their bodies are still producing insulin, but for a variety of reasons, they're not able to use it as efficiently or it's just not enough for their bodies. And so there can sometimes be uh, some lifestyle elements or contributors to it, such as um, poor diet or insufficient levels of activity. But there are also many, many other factors, such as um, genetics, ethnicity, um, many factors that can contribute to people developing type 2 diabetes. Um, And so the difference is type 1s make no insulin, and must take extra insulin to survive. Type 2s make some insulin, though some need to inject extra, um, but, but they are just not be, they're not able to have enough. They don't have enough in their bodies. So how did we get here uh, with this issue? Uh, was there, what's the reasoning behind it? Was there any consultation? All of a sudden, the CRA just stops re- accepting these applications? There really wasn't any. Uh, we received no notifications of a change of practice from the CRA. And then in April or May, started hearing complaints and questions from both patients and doctors and nurses saying, what's going on? All of a sudden, all of our applications are getting rejected. So Diabetes Canada met with the CRA 
and said, can you explain why you've changed your policy with respect to people with diabetes? And they said, well, we haven't. We haven't changed policy. We haven't changed guidelines. We haven't changed practice. And we said, well, that's not what we're seeing. We gave them hundreds of examples to to look at of the pattern that we were seeing, but we've never been able to get an answer as to why there's been such a systematic change in practice. So we know because the guidelines haven't changed, the policy hasn't changed, that these patients still do comply with the CRA's own stated guidelines and, and policies. And it's just for some reason at the coalface, there seems to have been a change of practice and we haven't been able to get an, an answer from CRA yet as to why. Ultimately, I'm less interested in why and I'm more interested in getting this practice changed, getting them back to following their own practice of accepting doctors' certifications that their patients meet the criteria and granting these people with diabetes the tax credit. How do you explain that they were once they were once in compliance and now they're not if nothing's changed? Uh, it, it's it's really inexplicable as far as I'm concerned because people don't as I mentioned earlier, you don't recover from type 1 diabetes, you don't ever stop having it. It doesn't get better or easier to manage as time goes on, quite the opposite for for most people. So it's pretty inexplicable to me. So uh, they say that nothing's changed, yet there's less and less receiving applications. That's right. What we're seeing is that whereas nine months ago, 80% of adults with type 1 diabetes who applied for the tax credit were getting it, now... 80 to 90 percent are being rejected. But nothing's, but nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. So, uh, again, uh, I'll ask again, h- how can they say that? What, what, how can they, uh, obviously, you've now gone public with this. W- where do you hope this goes? Because, obviously, it's different. Well, I hope to work with the CRA uh, as soon as possible to understand this better and to help them understand better what's involved in managing this debilitating disease so that they can uh, go back to accepting the doctors and nurses certifications. And And they didn't give any reasons for not doing that anymore? None. So who makes the call here, the government or the Canada Revenue Agency? Uh, That's a really good question. And um, I I believe that at the end of the day, the CRA itself, the, the bureaucracy is, um, you know, operates relatively autonomously and uh, is self-governing, and yet, um, you know, the minister's office must have some influence over them. And so, my hope is that uh, the combination of the, the the sort of the the government, both elected and uh, bureaucratic, will work together to turn this practice around. Um. Th- that being said, uh, is there reasoning the numbers are going up? I mean, we hear more and more people suffering uh, from diabetes in some way, whether it's one or two. Uh, is that the reason, just the sheer numbers? They can't afford to do it anymore? Uh, you know, it's, it, that's, a, uh, that's a possibility. I, I don't know their reason, but we are certainly seeing diabetes, uh, both kinds, proliferating at an alarming rate. We're at a point now where one in three Canadians is living with prediabetes or diabetes. 
one in three. Mm. And that is an epidemic of the highest order. And it's really, really scary if we don't do something to address uh, the, the many, many underlying causes of diabetes, we will have a health crisis on our hands uh, that, that really concerns us. So it could be that because there are more people living with diabetes, there are more people applying for the tax credit. Um, people that I've spoken with in the government have assured me that they want more Canadians to access this program, not fewer. And yet, when I've pointed out that their practice is pretty inconsistent with that statement, I haven't been able to get an understanding as to why. So what does your gut tell you here, Kimberly? I mean, this just seems bizarre. Well, my gut tells me that at a minimum, there's a misunderstanding as to what goes into managing diabetes. and But still, I guess my question is, why now? Why did this just start happening now? I, I really honestly couldn't yeah. speculate let me let me ask you this. Uh, the CRA made uh, a comment a few weeks ago saying they were going to start taxing company discounts. If you work someplace at a clothing store, for example, and you got a company discount, you'd be now taxed on that. The government kind of separated itself from that, saying, we didn't say that. They said that. So who's the liaison here? Who, who's, who's decoding what the CRA says for the government? Uh, and obviously, uh, people got so crazy mad with this whole thing about taxing company discounts and attacking the middle class per se that they that they got rid of it. Uh, do you think the same backlash is going to happen here? I mean, you know, your diabetics meds, and uh, I'm thinking your company discounts are up there. I, I uh, it's it's a it's a really good point, and I I don't. I don't know what's causing the current practice. I'm very concerned by it. And um, I don't know really who's making the calls. It's been harder than I would have expected it to be to liaise both with the CRA and with the minister's office. And I'm hoping that we'll see that change shortly because we'd really like to work with both of those groups in order to rectify this. Uh, In the meantime, what advice do you have for diabetics? Uh, Please don't stop applying. You're entitled to this credit if your doctor certifies that you are. And so please don't stop applying. Please don't hesitate to reach out to uh, to us for help if you need it. And uh, keep the faith. Diabetes Canada is committed to getting this issue addressed. What are the doctors saying about this? The doctors are frustrated they're um, they're not understanding why their certifications aren't being accepted. It's challenging for them because they're spending a lot of time um, filling out these applications and certifying them on behalf of their patients. That's time that they're not always remunerated for. And so they don't understand why their work is uh, not being valued, why they're, in some cases, they feel their integrity is being called into question. And that's uh, not what we would want. Website we can go to, Kimberly, to find out more about all of this? Diabetes.ca. Diabetes.ca, if you want to find out more, diabetes.ca. Conservative Party of Canada and local health advocates are accusing the government of a tax grab that claws back a disability credit for uh, diabetics and really offering no explanation as to why or why now. Uh, Kimberly Hansen is with us, Director of Federal Affairs, Diabetes Canada. Kimberly, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.